What a night, Leah. What is happening? <laughs> should we should we tell the people what's <laughs> happened? Yes. Over the span of 30 minutes. Yeah. It's only been 30 minutes. So we're recording, if you don't know, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, we are recording our second take of we, today's we artist. We lost two episodes. Yes, because of a blunder done by someone who would not be mentioned. <laughs> but, and it's me, in case you I say know. it wasn't me. <laughs> um, but as we were recording our second cold open, my dogs start going nuts in the backyard. So I pause, I go, as a mother, go see <laughs> what's going on. And there is another dog that showed up on the other side of the fence. Nice and friendly, wanted to play. We named him Ralph. Yeah, it was great. We found out his real name's Tanner, but that's all right. <laughs> um, but we put my dogs inside, and then we let Ralph into our yard. He started drinking the water that I left out there for my dogs. He I was, was more than happy to be hospitable and let him have some of it. He knew how to sit. He did. And that's when we knew he wasn't some some little wood, wooden dog. Wooden dog. Wood, wood forest dog. I don't know. He's not a, sh- a street rat. He's not a street rat. That's what we're saying. And we walked around the neighborhood, me, Leah, and my husband, Josh. Knocking, knocking on doors. Knocking on doors. <laughs> Which my husband said wasn't going to work. That's true. And, and we, found, we his found his home 30 minutes later. It only took four tries. And, and he also has two other siblings at home. No, one's his mom. True. I think it's a mom and a half sibling. And then yes. So Tanner, if you're there listening, <laughs> we appreciated our time together. We're being stalked. By, yeah, my dogs have not They're upset. forgiven me. Rody immediately sniffed my pants and looked at me. He was very offended. He was. Uh, anyway, we got another review. Woo! This is from our friend Lauren. Yay, Lauren. Who may or may not have been the inspiration for this podcast when she didn't know who Fleetwood Mac was in a conversation. We also may or may have not recorded the pre-episode. In her episode apartment. Episode zero in her apartment. Uh, so she said she has five stars. <laughs> she better have. And she said, these two have really helped expand my rock history knowledge in a fun and relatable way. I learn something every time and always have some good laughs. Aw, cheers. Cheers. You can't hear. Wait, let's see if I can get a clink. There it is. Yeah. That worked. I'm really glad that we didn't spill beer on my laptop in the process. Yeah, that was a close one. We have beer this time. Woo. We uh, went after work and stocked up at a local store called Et Martum. We'll give them a little bit of a shout out here because they are known as Lynchburg's Lady Beer Shop. Damn right. And I appreciate that. We'll tell you what we're drinking later, but... It is good. Spoiler alert. We're drinking the same thing this time. Normally yes. we don't. I'm Bethann. And I'm Leah. And this is She Will Rock You. Ooh, that was in a different octave this time. Yep. Normally it's a little lower, like da da da. So this week, I think it's, we don't need to talk about anything else, do we? <sighs> Other than Unless I'm, you want to talk about like AI and how it's going to kill us all. We nope. can spend some time on that. That's not the purpose of this podcast. <laughs> oh, we it's w- not? We will hint. Should we hint about what's coming next week, next episode? We should. We, we won't give a lot of details away, but you'll next in two weeks... From when you're listening to this, 
something different will be in your, if you subscribe, we'll be waiting for you on, I guess it'd be the 20th. Yes. We're not going to spoil it, but it's going to be a different format than what we've ever had before on these other eight episodes. Yes. <laughs> Our long, extensive podcasting <laughs> history. So stay tuned, subscribe. Leave a review. We'll probably mention that again later. Yeah. Anyway, this week we're talking again because we lost the first episode about Kansas. And when you're researching Kansas, it's really hard because, you know, Kansas is a state. So you can't just Google Kansas because you get the Wikipedia entry telling you how Kansas was formed out of the Louisiana Purchase. <laughs> and it's not relevant. Giving the long longitude and latitude yeah. and all that stuff. So I, I had this problem with Journey when I was researching. So I would type Journey Band. So I typed Kansas Band. Still was, it, I mean, it got me Wikipedia and stuff, but I was trying to find something more recent, more informative than Wikipedia. So I switched over to the little news tab. And the first result is Kansas band teacher accused of exploitation of student. Whoops. So <laughs> this research is a little harder than the past ones. It's not like the Rolling Stones where you just type Rolling Stones and you have a billion results. Yeah. So we're going to talk about a little band called Kansas, which... I only chose because there was some, po- I was like trying to figure out what I want to do next. And there's some playlist I was listening to on Spotify and carry on my wayward son was like the first song. And I was like, I don't know anything about Kansas. They're next. <laughs> Here we are. The year is 1969. It's the year we go to the moon. But that's, a, that's a weird year. It's a very weird year. Let's just start that. There's a great podcast series done by some podcast network I can't think of right now on Spotify. Summer of 69. Summer of 69, we have Zodiac Killer. Mm-hmm. We have The Manson Family Murders. Mm-hmm. We have Chappaquiddick. Mm-hmm. We have Woodstock. Yep. We have The Assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. The Death of Judy Garland. The Death of Judy Garland, which is a crazy ride. Highly recommend that one out of the series. While all this chaos is happening, let's, let us place our focus on Topeka, Kansas. In Topeka, two dudes by the name of... I'm not even going to mention the first guy. Because he's never going to come up again. But this guy named Don and his friend Carrie Livgren are in a band called Reasons Why. If you've listened to this podcast for more than one episode, you will know that name is not going to stay around. No, it will not. So they leave that band very quickly, like within six months of formation, join with two other guys, and rename the band Saratoga. Which, okay, I, I forgot about that. But it just doesn't make sense to me because they're located in Kansas. They're in Kansas. Sarah, I think Saratoga Springs, New York. I'm not thinking Saratoga with Kansas. They don't last very long either. Well, the next year, they merge with a rival band called White Clover, which I feel like maybe you shouldn't merge with your rival band, but okay. And they rename themselves Kansas. That lasts for a year, and then some leave and rejoin White Clover. But then, this is so weird. The group that broke away to rejoin Mm -hmm. White Clover ends up renaming themselves Kansas. (laughs) Wait, did they steal the other name? No. How did that work? I think the... So you have the group Kansas, and you got these rogue members that leave to go join White Clover. I think the Kansas that was left just banded. Okay. And they were like, you can still use this name. Got it. Don't know if that's true. That part wasn't covered in any of the, the things I talked or read. So we're just going to pretend that's what happened. 
1972, the, the band as we know it is formed. So let us introduce them. On drums, we have Phil Ehart, who is responsible for even making this band. Carrie Lifgren was here first, but Phil Ehart, he knew the right people to call to fill the right positions. He had, in his words, all of the ambition in the band. <laughs> you know, not, not to insult the others, but he was in charge. He formed the band in 1971, right after this unexplained trip to England where he studied the music business, and he just came back and made this band, and then things started happening. Hmm. It's not explained very well. Dave Hope was on bass. He's known for his signature handlebar mustache, and his nickname was Smokin' Dave, not because he was attractive, but because he usually had a cigarette in his mouth and photos. <laughs> it was the 70s. Robbie Steinhardt, he's on vocals, violin, viola, and cello. Oh, dang. You can best describe him as Hagrid in some overalls, because that's what he looks like. Yes. Oh, I'm <laughs> including him in the graphics. I just want to witness that. Uh, that's, that's a very accurate depiction of him. I'll show you him later. He was just asked to be in the band because he was unique. No other rock band had a violin in it, and Phil wanted a violin in his band, so he called up Robbie. Nice. Steve Walsh, he's vocal keyboards, our good friend the synthesizer, and percussion. Phil chose him to be in the band because he, quote, had soul for a white man. <laughs> All right. Rich Williams on guitar, he lost his right eye in a childhood fireworks accident. Really? You'll never know it in the old band photos because he had a glass eye for the longest time. But there's the documentary that they made. I don't remember what year it is until I get to the bottom of these notes. But it was it was like 10 years ago. He just has an eye patch on and they never explain why. And I was like, I, I feel like I need to know this. So that's why I found that information. If you see him, he has a fake eye. And then Carrie Livgren, who was the artistic... I'm going to call him the artistic genius behind the band. He wrote most of the songs that they sing. He was he got his early music exposure because his aunt would play old 78s of Mozart, Bach, Chopin. You know, not the blues R&B singers yeah. that everyone else is listening to. But she would tell him stories about the composers, which is pretty cool. So, that you know, really cool. classical music matters. We're going to talk about this in a later episode, but you would be surprised by what types of bands and genres have actually been influenced by classic music. We're not going to get into it now. It's but, a later episode. But it's m more common than you think it would be. I believe it. Especially after if you listen to Kansas. I mean, they have a violin on their band. But mm -hmm. if then you took that, even took that out, you can, you can hear the influence. Yeah, totally. They say in this, in this documentary that they were collectively influenced by these composers and the Beatles. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Another thing to know about Carrie is he was in a lot of bands with his friends in, in like high school and before Kansas, and they're not relevant to the story, but some of the best names of those were the Gimlets. Yes. And the Mellotones. Which oh, I love that. Sounds like a college acapella group. It, you know it is. It was not. It was it a rock band. <laughs> no, 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 no. So, in the interviews with the band. They say that it was not the British invasion that was influencing Kansas. It was the black musicians at the time. Dear James Brown, mm -hmm. Otis Redding, Temptation, The Four Tops. I think we know by now that that kind of influenced every rock and roll artist. We're going to keep mentioning it every episode, though, because it's, still, it's important. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe this is your first time listening. 
You should know this. Go back an episode, listen to Stevie Wonder. Yes. Meet us back here. Uh, but the problem about growing up in Kansas and trying to start a band in Kansas, never mind that your, na- your band is named Kansas, is that you're literally as far from the music industry as you can get. You got LA over here mm-hmm. and New York over here. You even got Nashville, which is still not close to Kansas. No. So they had a, I don't want to say a really hard time getting off the ground because eventually they do, but it was not easy. They had to live all, was it five of them? I should probably count. One, two, three, four. All six of them had to live in a house literally on top of each other. So they spent every single waking moment together, which which is kind of precious if you think about it. It's It's bonding. It was good for them. It helped them. And they practiced really, really hard. Yeah. They, They were doing gigs as much as they could every night. It made them really close and really grow as musicians together. But that being said, it was a band house. They did not take good care of it. They tell some interesting stories in this documentary. Does any house owned by a band ever... Nope. One <laughs> night, ever to be taken care of well? One night, they never explain how, but they came home from playing a gig, and the house was just on fire. <laughs> they don't know how. They don't explain how. They just made it sound like they put it out and just slept there that night. So oh, that's band life for you. They were making $175 a night as a group for each gig. So they were surviving on literally a dollar a day. I don't know whose job it was to be like, good morning, guys, here's your dollar. But that's In how it was. assembly line dollar. That's dollar. literally how it happened. And they had to get food. I mean, they had to function on a dollar a day. Yeah. Uh, that would not work now. No. But they, they hinted that those who smoked had to find creative ways to get their cigarettes. So interpret that as you would like. <laughs> yeah, that's not, that's not uh, implying anything at all. Nope. I'm, I'm going to guess they bummed them off girls a lot. Probably. So while they're living in this burnt up, disgusting band house, they somehow get an offer from a record label. But in order to get signed to this record label, they have to play a show for them. Problem, they're in the middle of nowhere in Kansas. They don't... A, don't have a venue big enough for the kind of show they want to put on in their town in Topeka. And B, like they have a following, but they don't have fans per se. Like they're a garage band still basically at this point. So they travel to the middle of nowhere in Texas where they find this warehouse. Oh, opera house, excuse me, which has this huge theater. It's perfect size for what they want to do. But they're from Kansas. They're not from Texas. They don't know anybody in town. So if they put up a flyer, no one's going to come. So they find a loophole. They pay $150 to rent this opera house. Then they put up posters that just say, free beer. That's it. That's it. And like in very tiny font underneath, it has like the date, the place, and it says music provided by Kansas. (laughs) So when you do that, you get thousands of people who want to come to your show mm-hmm. i mean they okay they want the free beer they don't want your show but they have no problem packing but they the don't mind having the music no and they're drinking they have free beer i don't know how much money they spent in free beer i'm gonna guess it was a lot yes uh needless to say the house was packed packed at 526 people <laughs> that's that's a lot it is a lot of people i mean it, it would be an extremely small venue nowadays but it's a lot of people. But it's also like 
kind of in the middle of Texas, right? Yeah, they're, they're literally in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, so for 526... It's the whole town. That's good. Yeah. The whole town came out. Well, they all came. A couple towns came out. They came, and there was a a line for, I want to say, like, two or three blocks of people who wouldn't fit in there. We just wanted the free beer. Yeah. Um, But, I mean, they got there. They had fun because they were having free beer, but they also really enjoyed the band. Despite the fact that in later they look back at the recordings and they say it was probably one of the worst shows they've ever played because Mm. at this point they they don't have a sound guy. They don't know anything about, like, mixing their sound. They don't know anything about what they're doing. They just bought some free beer and invited some people to a show. But for some reason, they think it was because of their violin, they get signed by a record. <laughs> just a bunch. They're, like, 19, 20 at this point. They're right. young. So they're, like, cool. Uh, so they don't read their contract because they're young and don't know what they're doing. And unknowingly, but willingly, signed away $30 million in publishing rights. Jeez, that's a lot. Read your contracts. That's a lot for the studio to own, especially for them. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know how it was worded. I don't know if it was like, you, you don't own the first $30 million, mm-hmm. or like, they just said, we owe a certain cut for the rest of your life, like not wow. expecting them to get as big as they were. Right. Or what. Um... But they say they don't regret it. They're just, they're good country boys. They're adorable in this documentary. They just wanted to make it. They just wanted to make it. They said it was the only break they ever got. They didn't think they were ever going to get another one, so they just signed the contract. The music producer that they get signed under, his last album was Barbara Streisand. Hmm. So he didn't exactly come from a rock world. I don't know how that was supposed to work. It does. Spoiler in the end. And they didn't have a manager, so they are just with this dude who doesn't know rock music, no manager, six dudes from Kansas, just go to New York City and record at the record plant. Yeah. Which, at that time that they're recording, let's just see who else was at the record plant. Studio A, we got Alice Cooper. Nice. Studio B, Steven Tyler. Nice. Steven C is John, uh, Studio C. Studio C is John Lennon. Oh, that's a big deal. And then like Studio D, E, or F or something is Kansas. <laughs> no one's ever heard of. Um, so they had a really hard time recording this their first album because some of their songs are up to an exceeding nine minutes long. Oh, wow. This is the day and age when everything was recorded and ha- like hand cut. Mm-hmm. So you can't just be wasting tape for one run through of a nine minute song. So, most of the recordings on that first album, which is called Kansas, were first or second run-throughs live playing. That's That's it. And they just said, hit the tape and go. They just said, go. We have to get this right. We can't mess this up. Wow. That's a lot of pressure. They made the whole album in two weeks. And most of them were just first cuts live. That's crazy. So then they go, well, we need cover art for this album, right? We can't just... It needs to mean something. We're from Kansas. We're in New York City. We can't just do what the studio tells us. So one of them, I forget which one of them, decides that the cover art has to be a photo of this John Brown painting from the Topeka State Capitol building. The problem is, it's 1974, not a lot of photos of the Topeka State Capitol Google building. Google doesn't exist then. No. So you do find the photographer. Easier said than done. 
They don't even know if a photo of the building exists, and they have no money to pay someone to take one for them. So they're at home just like hanging out, doing something, waiting for the record to drop, getting their stuff together. And one of them runs into a friend who just happens, his dad happens to be the Kansas state photographer who's in charge of photographing these things. And he's like, oh yeah, you can use that photo. Here you go. Literally just perfect. Yep. So that is the first of their, as they call them, miracles out of nowhere that they end up naming, I want to say an album, definitely their documentary after. Uh, They have some really cool things like this that are just like little moments that happened that they're probably their career would never have existed without. Mm-hmm. That's number one. That's the front of the album. The back of the album and the, the sleeve, the inside sleeve and booklet, they need some promo photos. So keep in mind, one of these guys looks like Hagrid in overalls. These are not guys who enjoy having their photo taken, right? But I want to see his photo. <laughs> but he does not want you to take it. So all of them hate having their picture taken, which is kind of funny in a time that, you know, they weren't having their picture taken a whole lot, but they all hated it. So they they hire some poor, probably intern, very new photographer. Absolutely. To go take photographs of the band. And of all the locations that that photographer could have taken them, do you remember where they take them? It's... A restaurant, right? It's a McDonald's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so there's a photo of the six of them. You know those little tiny two-seat booths at McDonald's? Yeah. It's like the six of them sitting on the bench seat, and they all just look miserable. It's hilarious. That's it's- just brilliant, though. <laughs> like, think about, like, 70s photos outside. And, like, the trees are going, like, wind is blowing, and then here they are eating a McDouble. <laughs> There's no food in front of them. They're just sitting Wait, in the what? They're just in the McDonald's with no food? I'm pretty sure. That's pointless. It's been like three weeks since but I've But I appreciate now. the initiative. So that didn't work out super great. So then she goes, oh, or she, he, I don't know who the, what the photographer, what their gender was. They take them to a truck lot of like abandoned semi-trucks. And they say it's because of their big sound. <laughs> No, no, no. That's because let me let me tell you what that was. This kid could not get permissions to film anywhere else. Nope. So he stuck with the McDonald's and retired truck lot. But you got to work with it. You got to make something up. So they're not feeling this photo shoot at all by this point because it doesn't reflect them. Doesn't reflect their image. I'm not sure they even have an image at this point, but it's not the image that they want. Mm-hmm. Um. So the photographer goes, "Hey, we're almost done." Just go stand on this little hill. It's like this field next to the truck lot. We'll just take a few more. Like, the photographer's done at this point. They're all done at this point. And they're like, fine. So after they get them up on this hill, he gets up on this hill. He goes, okay, get on formation. And then literally out of nowhere, they call it the miracle storm. Moves in. The background gets super dark. Like, there's these very ominous clouds in the background. And then this little peak of sunlight comes and just like spotlights right on them on the hill. And the photographer takes one shot and just puts the puts his camera down and goes, I got it. I got your album photo. We can just throw all the others away. Oh wow. And that's the album photo. Like Wait, he threw away the McDonald's photo? No, they're they're still Okay. Good. They threw them out as options. Got it. They exist. They're in this documentary. Um so that was that was miracle number two. 
was getting a decent photo. So it's like cool. it is a perfectly lit photo. You never get you only get those like once in a And it was after he took that frame, wrong. the clouds changed and that like yeah. that spotlight was gone. That's so, amazing. So after this record releases, Kansas is on the map. Pun very much intended. <laughs> they right. finally get a booking agent, someone more responsible than twenty year old to book their their stuff. And they start getting booked as opening acts from bigger bands. Um, when they're touring, after like the first or second gig, they realize, hey, we should probably have a sound guy mixing our sound. And so they finally hire one. It takes them this long to hire a sound guy. <laughs> they play 248 gigs in that first year. Let's keep in mind there's only 365 days in a year. So that's like two months off in the yeah. whole year. That's crazy. They literally lit on the road, which made them better players because they were playing every night and rehearsing when they weren't playing and made them just, you know, a closer knit band because they're still living on top of each other after this band house. Yeah. And they begin to follow kind of a cult following because people will see them. They'll, I don't know what, how did you review bands back in the 70s other than newspapers? Newspaper, magazine. Like, I don't know how you get your word out to your word friends, but they, they start, it starts to happen. People start following them to these gigs. So one of the bands that they open up for, just a little band called Queen, on their Sheer Heart Attack tour in 1975. So let me, let me set this scene. Oh, let me not bang the chair. Let me set this scene for you. I'm sitting here watching this documentary, just minding my own business, taking notes for this, this podcast. And they just throw that out casually. And then Brian May pops up on the screen. And I was like, what the heck? <laughs> oh, Grandpa. <laughs> Give a girl a warning. Up. Except it was like 10 years ago, so he definitely did not. Oh, he wasn't Grandpa. As old point. as he does okay. now. Um, but he, I mean, I don't know if they just made him say this for the documentary, because that's how that works. But Brian May gives very high accolades to Kansas and how good of a band they were, how much, how much of a pleasure it was to have them as their opening band. His exact words were that Kansas was tight as hell and so well rehearsed. So, I mean, for a queen to respect what you're doing That's a as a deal. band. Um, so, while they're on the road doing these, these opening gigs, they re- write and record their second album, Song for America. It's very romantic. They spent the whole year touring America, so they wrote a song for it. So, they, that's released only 10 months after their first album. Wow. While they're playing 200 and what was it, 76 oh, gigs? about the 70s. 248 they, gigs. All those artists just pumped out albums like. They were on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> That's one way of saying it. <laughs> so Brian May says that it's epic. Uh, all the lyrics. Nope, that doesn't make sense. Carrie Livgren wrote, I want to say all, but definitely most of the lyrics uh, while he was thinking about American history. I feel like Kansas is a state that definitely takes American history very seriously because, you know, it wouldn't exist without the Louisiana Purchase. Yeah. They're a relatively new state. Yeah, I think it's safe say to that. say, like, they didn't, they didn't exist till at least our sixth or seventh president. So. Yeah. Uh, all that to say, after this album drops, they start opening for Aerosmith Aww. in Wichita. It might have just been that date on the show. But apparently, Steven Tyler had, before they started opening, had this history of sabotaging opening bands when he felt like they were going to do better than Aerosmith. I forgot about this. So he would watch them from the wings, and if 
the, the crowd was reacting strongly to them, he would, like, unplug their amps. That's so mean. Which is just a dick move. Yeah. So the tech guy that they hired by this point gets wind of this, and he goes, watch this. So he sets up a whole set of dummy wires to the amps where they would normally be. Yeah. And then runs all the actual power off the opposite side of the stage and, like, under the stage and to a different outlet, like, out in the house. And so when Steven Tyler gets mad and rips him out, nothing happens <laughs> because tech guy was super smart about it. So props to him. Yeah, definitely. After that, they stopped touring just long enough to make a third album, which is called The Point of No Return, K-N-O-W. Uh, this one is where the band starts to get a little tense. They they had different members who wanted to move in different directions, but eventually they get the album out. But they still haven't had a commercial success. They don't have a hit single. Right. Like they're just they're just openers at this point. Yeah. Like they're opening for the big bands. Yeah, they're on their third album, but they're still just opening. Which I can see a record label being like, "Hey, you got one more shot." Or we're dropping you. Yeah. Time to be pushed out of the nest. So they start on album number four, which they call their pressure album. Like, they were under immense pressure writing this because they needed that number one hit or they may not be around next year. Mm-hmm. Um, so Carrie Livgren writes, again, most if not all of the whole thing. He feels like all the pressure's on him. He, like, loses sleep at night, makes himself super anxious, super worked up. But... He doesn't feel like it's it's what it should be. Like, there's something missing. So they're, they're in the studio, like, last day. They have all the songs on the album recorded, make, like, starting to mix them. And they're packing up their gear. And Carrie just walks in and was like, hey, this came to me in a dream last night. You guys need to hear it. Yes. And that song was Carrie on My Wayward Son. The best, the best songs come from dreams. It was. They, I mean, Carrie just literally sits down like, I don't know if you plunk it on piano or guitar, but one instrument version of this song, which if you've heard it, it has many, many instruments. But even in that, that stripped down, plinked out version, the rest of the band like stops their doing, jaw drops the floor. They say it felt magical to hear him play it. And they knew in that moment it was going to be their breakout song. Wow. I would just love to know the dream. Did they talk no, about the dream? they didn't. <sighs> I would have loved something to, like, I don't know. It's just something to, like, descend from the clouds, like a fairy. And he just whispers in his ear, carry on, my wayward son. It happens a lot. Songs and dreams. Yeah. I don't know because I can't write music. But. Happened to another artist that we'll talk about some other time. It happens to a lot of people. Happened to my boy Des Rocks, who everyone should go check out. His, his single that dropped last year, Let Me Live, Let Me Die, came in a dream. He recorded it in an really? hour. It was his breakout wow. song. Well, breakout as yeah. He's still not signed. He he's independent. All that to say, but still, yeah. Dreams write good songs. So they drop that on their fourth album, which they call Left Overture. <laughs> that classical influence making it it's uh, self known. And this song was played all over the radio on every station for the better part of I want to say like two years. Yeah, it did not stop. And they call it the song that changed their lives. 
it went gold in four weeks and then platinum three weeks after that, which is super fast. Uh, they say in the documentary that I think it was played on, on a radio station at some point in America, I think every two minutes, which is like before one play could even finish, another one would start somewhere else. That's crazy. After the song drops, they end up breaking Elvis's record at the Civic Arena, playing two nights back to back of an audi- to an audience of 30,000 people. Wow. And that's not even the biggest show they're going to play. So they go on tour again. As you have to, because it's the 70s, and you gotta get your, your name and your face out there. And they document this tour with a double live album of recordings from this tour called Two for the Show. After the release of this album, they gained this really interesting reputation for how accurate their live show is to their studio recordings, which I think is weird. Because I like it when the live sh- show doesn't match the studio record like it does yeah. you know but there's some kind of flair to there, it. there's a little bit of a different maybe they take the song and sing it in a different way yeah yeah maybe the guitarist has another little interlude for fun yeah there's something different they switch but it up. they get a reputation for basically regurgitating their album to each their own so once this album goes platinum their publicist throws them a party to celebrate the success what else would you theme a platinum success party for a band named Kansas than Wizard of Oz. <laughs> they they even went as far to hire midget actors because, oh, you know, it's 1978 and we don't believe in being politically correct. No, it's not. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, but they show up to their own party and all the food is gone. Oh, that's <laughs> sad. Like no one could save some chips and salsa for them? No one saved anything for them. They just show up and even talking about it years later in this documentary, you can tell they're still upset about it. <laughs> I would be too. Yeah, that's fair. Um, in 1977, they get their next hit and their next album off of... Wait, didn't we talk about Point of No Return already? You mentioned it. I don't know. Maybe my notes are out of order. But they have their next hit off of Point of No Return. Uh, I didn't scroll down far enough. It's Dust in the Wind. And the story of how he wrote this one is cute. So Carrie Livgren, our, our lyrical musical genius was just sitting in his living room one day, just playing guitar and doing a finger-picking exercise to warm up, and his wife was like, that's really pretty. You should turn that into a song. And so he did. <laughs> and it was not their biggest hit. Carry On My Wayward Son was still their biggest hit, but it came very close to that one because it's an acoustic song, and it could get a lot of cross-play on country radio. Smart. Genius. This is the thing that skyrockets them to success. Very quickly after this, they sell out Madison Square Garden. Wow. But then, then things start to fall apart. They follow this album with a little album called Monolith in 1979. And you may remember from the last time we recorded this. Is this this the one with the... This is the weird one. Okay. So. Yes. While writing this album, Carrie Livgren becomes obsessed with a book called the Urantia book. Which I still want to read. I mean, it looks very short. So, the Urantia book is a series of paper, papers, oh, this this beer makes so much sense for this episode. Uh, It's a series of papers that claim to be a revelation authored by supernatural beings. No one knows who wrote it. It just shows up in Chicago 
sometime between 1924 and 1955. I love it. It's a 20-year window. I love it so much. It aims to unite religion, science, and philosophy. There's an enormous amount of material about science in it, and it's unique among literature because it's claimed to be presented by celestial beings. It discusses a lot of things, including the origin and meaning of life, mankind's place in the universe, relationship between God and people, and the life of Jesus. Why not? Just throw Jesus in there. So because he's obsessed with this, he puts a lot of the doctrines from the book into the lyrics on Monolith. So if you want a wild ride, just go listen to the Monolith album. Oh my gosh. But then, while touring this album, Carrie ends up rejecting the Urantia papers and converting to Christianity. Oh, whoops. (laughs) Because after releasing this, I mean, they spent a lot of time on the tour bus with, you know, his bandmates and the opening acts. And they would get into these debates, these like theological debates. And one of the opening acts members was a very devout Christian. And the two of them would get in fights about what book was right about Jesus, the Bible or the Urantia book. Uh, Well, I guess, I guess he determined that the Bible was right because he became convinced that it was the, the only correct account drops the Urantia book. It converts to Christianity. But couldn't you have this conversation after the tour? After they're done touring the nope. album? Because not... I mean, hey, he's made his choice. He's become a Christian. Eat to each his own. But then all of a sudden he's like, ah, oh, crap. Now I have to sing about your ranch. Now you got to sing about your false theology. That's... Well, what you now think is a false theology. Whatever. So, because of this conversion, the band starts to drift apart. It's the early 1980s. You got televangelists everywhere. Mm-hmm. You got very differing opinions on Christianity. And Carrie just wants to start writing Christian lyrics. But the band does not want that. His Christian lyrics do lead to a top 40 hit off of their next album, which is called Audio Visions. The song is called Hold On. And somewhere in this process, he convinces Dave Hope to convert to Christianity as well. Hmm. So now you got two of the six have been converted. This just further causes more fights about lyrics, how the band presents themselves, their lifestyle, like all these these fights. So Steve Walsh ends up leaving, and they replace him with a guy named John Elefante, who is, shocker, also a Christian. So now we're 50-50. Okay. They release another album called Vinyl Confessions, which is one of my favorite band names, not band name. One of my favorite album names I've ever heard. It just sounds... It's just a great album name. Which gives them their first top 20 hit since Dust in the Wind. It's called Play the Game Tonight. But, as you can imagine, they have this audience that's been following them for years. They start these Christian lyrics. Suddenly, these two audiences don't mesh very well. Right. And so, they're not really sure what to do. They release another album because that's the solution, called Drastic Measures. (laughs) Great timing. And then our friend Hagrid, violinist Robbie, he leaves. He's tired of the band fighting. He got his letter from Hogwarts. He he had to go take care of some magical creatures. Um, So for various reasons, Carrie, who's been the main songwriter for the last 20... I can't math. The last 15 or so years of this band... He only has three songs on this album, which is highly unusual. The album does okay. 
it's nowhere near the success that their last albums have been. Yeah. So they give one final New Year's Eve performance in 1983. Then Carrie Livgren decides he's uncomfortable with how his band members are representing his Christian worldview and leaves. So they record one last song and then they disband. Don't worry, they get back together. But in the meantime, we have a little interlude of what Carrie Livgren was up to. So Carrie Livgren, he doesn't want to stop making music. I mean, it's been his life forever. Mm-hmm. But due to some legal entanglements, some issues with Kansas, he's not allowed to start a band in the mainstream secular market. So there's a loophole. There's a loophole. He's able to negotiate with his record label and start a Christian rock band, which he names AD. Yes. <laughs> I've never listened to their songs. And what year is this? This is from 1983 to 89. So he's at the cusp of it. Oh, yeah. CCM really hasn't found its footing yet. He was the... Until around 1985. He was probably one of the first. Yeah. No. Yeah. I think you're right in that. Didn't last. Uh, Because there was no Christian rock market at the time. Yeah. There... It was a little too early. A little too early. The country is very divided at this time on how it even feels about Christianity. Yeah, so with that all the really, televangelists yeah. and prosperity gospel and all that. Really hinders their marketability. Yeah. So they toured a little bit between 83 and 86. The funniest part of that is some nights they would play bars and then the next night they'd play a church. Oh. Uh, I don't... That's all I have on, on AD. There is nothing on Wikipedia about them. And I didn't care to go further because it's not really relevant to the story. So when they're at a church, it's AD stands for after death, after Christ's death. Yes. But at a bar, it stands for after drinks. Yes. <laughs> I just wanted to clarify that. I just want to know who is coming to these concerts, these Christian rock concerts in the bar. Like, I mean, those are two very different crowds. But it's probably a discussion for a later time, but was Christianity at that point, was there still like a... Fear against alcohol. Yes. Was that happening? Yes. Was the more majority in full swing and... Oh, yes. Okay. We weren't drinking. Okay. Got it. It's so different up in New York, so I ask... Down here, we were not drinking. Okay. My grandparents were not drinking. Got it. 1985, Walsh, E. Hart, and Williams reformed Kansas. They're still missing Livgren, Hope, and Steinhardt. So you got half a band. This half a band releases a new album... Which contains the last ever Kansas Top 40 single, All I Wanted. In November 1990, somehow, a German promoter gets the whole band back together, except Robbie Steinhardt. He's just done at this point. And then, you know, the band members continue to stay. Some go. Like, Mm -hmm. it just flip-flops for years. 1991, 1997... Finally, in 2000, they release another album, which Carrie, re- he finally is back. He wrote all the songs for, um, it features all the original band members, but they didn't all tour for that album. They replaced some of them, which seems like cheating, but whatever. Yeah. February 2009, they release a live concert with a full orchestra, which is pretty cool, mm-hmm. and release it on DVD. They call it There's No Place Like Home Aww. because they're Kansas. In July 2010, they completed a 30-day United We I cannot talk now. United We Rock tour, 
That's real hard to say. With fellow classic rock acts, Styx and Foreigner. Then, immediately after they finished that, they began a collegiate tour, which doesn't sound that cool, but it's actually kind of cool. Because on that tour, they performed the college symphony orchestras of various U.S. colleges. so nice. And then all of the money that they made off that tour went back to school. Because you know, so great. You know those music programs had a budget of zero dollars. Oh, yeah. No, they need this, the love and support. So, good job, Kansas. Um, March 2015, they released a documentary called Miracles Out of Nowhere. A lot of this research came from that. I will say I paid for this documentary, which means a lot because I do not like to pay <laughs> for documentaries. I like when people put them on YouTube for free. But it, it tells the story of their formation and through the release of Point of No Return. I didn't expect to love these six guys as much as I did in that two-hour doc- or hour-and-a-half documentary. They're just dudes who just love playing music. That is all they have ever wanted. The success could not matter less to them. Like, they don't care. They just like to be playing music. That's respectable. Um, and then the last note that I have here about their career was something that I didn't know until, until doing this that even happened. On June 25th, 2019, so like three months ago from the time Mm -hmm. we're recording this, the New York Times Magazine released a list of everything that was destroyed in the 2008 Universal Fire. Oh, yeah. I did not even remember this happening because in 2008, I was 14 and definitely not paying attention to the world. Um, So this fire happened June 1st, 2008. This was 11 years ago, which is terrifying to think of. And it happened on a universal, like, back lot. Mm-hmm. And it began when a worker was trying to use a blowtorch to warm up some asphalt shingles <laughs> that were being applied to a facade for a film, which just sounds like a really bad way That's to apply shingles. a bad idea. But he started, he, she, they started a fire that burned for 12 hours and destroyed three acres of the universal back lot. Oh, that's so painful. Including the King Kong encounter. Yes. Um, I don't actually know what that is. I'm assuming it, it's a walkthrough. So they exhibit. had, like, before Universal Studios was this thing. Okay. They had an actual backlot back lot tour that you could sign up for, where they would take you around to different movie sets. Like, there was one part of the experience where, and it wasn't just like, oh, here's this, here's that. They actually made it, like, an actual thrilling thing. Yeah. And they even had this thing where, like, this train looks like it's going to ram into your tram. Like... <laughs> Ram into your Ram tram. Into your tram. Um, but I know they had this King Kong part of it that, like, I think, like, I don't know. I, I've seen clip art of it before. Yeah, it but burned so, down. Yeah, well, <laughs> you'll have to research on your own because it's no longer there. But, yeah, that was a part of it. Yeah, so a lot of that, the back lot that burned was warehouses, which is almost worse than just, like, sets burning yeah. down. So you can rebuild sets, but you can't replace what was in these warehouses. No, you cannot. Um, and it was estimated at the time, they now, since as of three months ago, released the full master catalog of what burned down. Um, it was estimated between 118 to 175,000 audio oh. master tapes that belonged to Universal Music Group burned in this fire, including recordings from Cher, Eric Clapton, Neil Diamond, The Eagles, Eminem, Guns N' Roses, Janet Jackson, Elton John, Olivia Newton-John, George Strait, Barry White, and The Who. Doesn't that hurt your heart? It does. Thinking about... I mean, 
some people would be like, so what? You have it on stream? No, no, no. There's something about having like the original, original tapes. Also, you know, if there's 118,000 tapes, there's some unreleased music in yes. there. Yes. Now we'll never see it because it went up in flames. Yeah. I mean, we're still, uh, they're still uncovering like, it's not new music necessarily, but there's a lot of Bowie tapes that are being released. Yes, same with it's the Prince. It's like demo tapes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like there's an acoustic version of Space Oddity that was released like a month ago that I love. Yes, yeah. it's different. It's so different from the the like final recording. Um, all that to say, Kansas's original tapes were destroyed in that fire. That's sad. Are the McDonald photos okay? Yeah, they weren't in that warehouse. Okay, good. <laughs> They're somewhere in New York, I think. Good. They're Just in this documentary. Sure. They at least exist in the documentary. It's all I care about. Um, nowadays, they are still touring, some of them. Um, I got a burp again. Good Lord. This beer is very carbonated. Okay. Richard Williams, uh, I found an article from about a month ago where they interviewed him on his upcoming... I want to say spring 2020 tour. Mm-hmm. They're booked all the way up to 2021. These, Good for them. They're just touring, living their best life. Uh, those of them who are still with, with the band, obviously Robbie Steinhardt's not still around. He's retired. Dave Hope is also retired, but not just retired from the band. He's retired from being an Anglican priest as well. Oh, my dad's an Anglican <laughs> priest. I relate to that. In his spare time in retirement... He's the bassist for a praise band Yes. called the IRS. Oh, that's a terrible name for a praise band. What does it stand for? I don't know. I'm going to go. I'm gonna go Someone it. tell me. The I'm going to think I'm gonna think of something. In reverent service. That's my guess. That's that is my guess. I really hope I'm right. Here we go. Wikipedia does not have an article with this exact name. Oh, come on. D-I-R-S. Praise. Band. I'm typing this with one hand and holding my beer with the other. Um, yeah, I, don't, I can't find it. So Man. we're just going to make up something. In reference service. That's probably what it means. And he, but obviously not fulfilling him because he's currently working to produce a local secular group with some of his old friends. Oh, that's nice. Also, a random note that I just need to throw in there is when you are doing research for Kansas and you go to Tumblr and search Kansas band, it's just full of supernatural spam because Carry On My Wayward Son is the supernatural theme song. Oh, yeah. And I don't know why these kids feel the need to tag Kansas in their supernatural posts. But whatever. Kansas ain't on Tumblr. You don't need to tag them. There, there are also some very weird posts. Oh, I can How imagine. attractive some of the band members were. Ay. And those posts also exist in the Queen fandom. The Kansas fans are just a little weirder about it. <laughs> uh, all that to say, Kansas was a much wilder ride than I was anticipating. Was not expecting it to get theological at all. But here we are. Your Rancho Papers. Who knew? <laughs> Tell me about your beer. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've been hinting at it all so, episode. So, we went and bought beer from at Martin. 
And normally we drink different things. We record two episodes at a time. But today, since we were just recording this one, we had to get the same one. And it is Area 151. It's got a little a little spaceship on it. It's all, like in green font. It's actually very bad fonts on here. I'll forgive them for that. It is a Belgian-style ale brewed with blackberries. It is really good. It's super good. It's from Wild Wolf Brewing Company, which is located not that far away in Nellysford. It's called Area 151. I'll just read you the blurb on the can. Area 151 is named for our location on Highway 151 in Virginia. We know that here as the 151 corridor. This Belgian-style ale has blackberries added during fermentation, giving the beer a beautiful color, a great nose, and a refreshing flavor. I am a fan. It's very good. I literally just chose it because it's called Area 151, and a week from when you're hearing this episode is when the um, the raid is happening. So that just feels Area 151, right. fueling Kyle's. Yes. This is a beer <laughs> for Kyle's, Kyle's. The Kyle's and Karen's. We'll make sure a monster label is covering it so you think it's monster. It's but pe- this is for you. It could pass as monster. It, it has the same colors. Very fruity. Yeah. Their can says uh, indefinitely recyclable, leave only paw prints. because yeah, because they're wild wolf mm-hmm. brewing company. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and on Stitcher. You also can leave us a review. If you leave a review, we may read it on air, and we'd really appreciate the stars. Special thanks to Josh Tarpley for our intro riff and Lauren Page Photography for our cover art. We're also fueled by Backline Coffee, and we get our records from Speaker Tree. If you are in the Lynchburg area, please go check them out. They are really good friends. They're really awesome. We love them to death. Uh, you can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at She Will Rock You Podcast. You also can follow me and Leah on our individual accounts. You can follow me at, at Beth Ann Tarpley, B E T H A N N E, and Leah at L- Leah Elizabeth dot J. Not Leah Elizabeth J. That's someone else. You gotta add the dot J. They won't give me their handle either. <laughs> Other than that, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. And take photos of McDonald's. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>